and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Uh, This morning, Revelation chapter 21, we're talking about the realm of the king. This week and next, we're going to be looking at what is heaven. And one of the questions that everybody kind of wonders is what happens after we die? Um, And so I looked at a handful of different surveys on that, and I'm giving you a cross-section of a few different surveys here, but uh, they asked Americans what what happens when you die, and most people believe in heaven and hell. Uh, That's actually single-digit percentages of people that don't believe in an afterlife. Um, And and so most people believe in heaven or hell, and roughly 80% of the American population would raise their hand and say, I believe I'm going to heaven. Um, Only 2% believe they're going to hell, which... Sounds like hopefulness. Um, and then roughly 8 to 10% believe that nothing happens. It's annihilation. And then another 8 to 10% believe in reincarnation. Um, if you're not familiar with cowboy poetry, I want to introduce you to one poem this morning by Wallace McRae. It's titled Reincarnation. It goes like this. What is reincarnation? A cowboy asked his friend. Why, it's something that happens when your life has reached its end. They comb your hair and wash your neck and clean your fingernails. They lay you in a padded box away from life's travails. Now this box and you goes in a hole that's been dug in the ground. And this here reincarnation starts you're planted neath the ground. Now pretty soon the clods melt down along with the box and you who are inside. And then you're just beginning your transformation ride. And then one day some grass will grow upon the rendered mound until one day your moldered grave has flower. Excuse me. Now, until one day on your moldered grave, a little flower is found. Then say by chance a horse should wander by and graze upon that flower that once was you and now has become your vegetable bower. Now posy that the horse done, that the horse done ate, along with all the rest his feed, becomes fat and bone and muscle essential to the steed. But some is consumed that he can't use until it finally passes through. And there just lays on the ground that thing that once was you. And then I see this on the ground and I wonder and I ponder at this object that I've found. I begin to think about reincarnation, life, and death and such, and I come away concluding, pal, you ain't changed that much. (laughs) I thought that was too good not to include. But from a biblical perspective, reincarnation is what the horse left on the ground. It's not true. What is true from a biblical perspective is that a new heaven and a new earth awaits those who are saved by Christ, and a lake of fire awaits those who are not saved by Jesus. The percentage of those going to each place is probably not even close to what the surveys reveal about what people believe. And so as we study Revelation chapter 21 over the next couple of weeks, we'll get a better understanding of what heaven is according to the Bible. As we do this, we'll find not angels sitting on clouds playing harps and never-ending singing, 
But there is an amazing new earth with a dazzling city ruled by a perfect king. We'll not find people from every religion or noble pagans, but we will find a group of people who are made sinless, holy, and perfect by the grace of our Lord and our God, Jesus Christ, in whom we trust. The real heaven is not a place of godless assumptions, false platitudes, and universal salvation. The real heaven is a place too amazing to be fully comprehended, yet it's somewhat like this earth that we have and when we imagine it without sin. The real heaven centers not on false hopes of seeing our loved ones, as though anyone we ever cared for will be in heaven or that will be there simply because we were a good person, but a fixed and true hope of a people saved and set apart by Jesus that will join in centering their eternity on the goodness of God. We will find not a nebulous, mystical, spiritual realm, but a real, tangible, physical world that includes everything good, think of the Genesis account of creation, and zero sin. And so as you approach what you consider to be heaven, you kind of have to wonder, what are your sources? Are they credible sources? You know, it's not like Hollywood and all dogs go to heaven. It's none of those things. It's not the pagan assumptions that come from the Roman world that have mixed their way into what we believe about heaven. It's not universal salvation that's so popular in our culture right now. What does the Bible have to say about heaven? What's it like? Who's there? Why are they there? How did they get there? What happens to everyone else? And so that's my goal for us as we study these passages to have a biblical perspective on what eternity is. Um, you may not agree with it. You may walk away saying, I don't think that's what eternity is. And you're allowed to think that. I just want you to understand that if you don't agree with what the scriptures say, you need to recognize that you're probably not following Jesus. You're probably following some other popular version or worldly Christian or Americanized version of Jesus. Uh, I don't care what the liberal church says about universal salvation. I care what the scriptures say. And so that's what we're going to do as we study these passages. Let me pray with you and we'll look at the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 21. Father, this morning I, I echo Micah's prayer that you would enlighten these scriptures for us so that we can understand uh, what eternity will be like. Uh, who will be there? Uh, what, is, what is heaven like? What is the new heaven and the new earth like? What is this city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven? What is that about? What does it mean to be at peace with you and to live in a place where everyone is at peace with you? What is it like when the entire world, cleansed of sin, focuses their eyes on your son Jesus and lives perfectly? What happens to those who reject your son? How should this inspire us to live now and share the message of the gospel now? And for those who don't know you yet, Father, I pray that today they would hear the truth of what awaits them in eternity if they continue to reject this message of Jesus' salvation, his death on the cross for their sin, his resurrection from the dead to give them new life. And I pray today would be their day of salvation turning away from wrong belief and trusting you based upon your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So John is receiving a, a long vision here. 
And at the beginning of chapter 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down, from heaven, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. So he gets this vision, and it's of a new heaven, a new earth, a holy city, a perfect city of peace. Uh, there's no sea, and, and all of this is prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And so when we talk about heaven within the scriptures, that word heaven could be used of three different things. Uh, sometimes it would be used of the earth's atmosphere. We would probably say the word sky. Uh, it could be used of where the stars are and the planets, and we would use the word outer space. The other thing that the word heaven was used for was God's dwelling place, the place where God lives um, in his holiness. He also dwells among us. Now we understand that. Uh, but one of the things that we get from the scriptures is that in, God created Adam and Eve and everything was good and they lived in the Garden of Eden and there was unity between humanity and God. And then the lie creeps in, the serpent creeps in, and he guides people to trust in themselves rather than trusting in God. And because of that, there's a separation, right? They're cast out of Eden. There's a separation between God and humanity. There's also a promise that God is going to bring salvation to these people, that there's going to be someone who's going to bring them salvation. But you move forward through history, and eventually what happens is through the Jewish people, God gives Moses directions on how to set up the tabernacle. And it's this uh, tent of meeting, and there's all this imagery about going back to Eden, but there's also all this separation. There's a, there's a wall around it, and before you can even enter into where the tent is, you have to go through a cleansing process. And the first thing that you would walk up to within the tabernacle was an altar where an animal would be sacrificed to pay for sin. And so you immediately know, man, there's something wrong with me, and before I approach God, I've got to deal with my sin. I need a sacrifice on my behalf. And then in the tabernacle, only a select group of priests are allowed to go in. And even within the tabernacle, there's a holy of holies where there's only one man allowed to go in there one time a year in order to make a sacrifice, an atonement for sin. And so uh, the picture of the tabernacle within the Old Testament was God is holy, humanity is broken, and there's a lot of work to do for us to be right with him. And what we find within humanity is an inability to be right with God. And so what the tabernacle really was, was it's a, it's a pointing forward to uh, when God would come, when Christ would come and dwell among us. John actually introduces Jesus as uh, the one who, the, the God who took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us. He lived among us. And so that's what this is about. This is about God's dwelling place. It's about Jesus making it, so that we could be holy, so that we could enter into God's presence. And so the separation of God's holiness from the earth is, is done away with. Evil is taken off the earth. Sin is wiped out. There's a new level of companionship with God that will be known as we see his, his realm. When John was before Pilate, he said his kingdom was not of this cosmos, this realm. But we're going to get to see Jesus' realm. We're going to get to see what he is preparing for us, his throne and his Edenic city coming down from heaven for the first time. We know that as Christians, we're currently citizens of heaven, but we live as exiles in the current world. That's how Peter describes us. He says that we're living as exiles. Do you consider yourself an exile on this earth? That your citizenship is actually somewhere else? Now, that doesn't mean that as an exile, we, you know, we uh, tear down the society that we live in. If you think about what Daniel did, Daniel was an exile and he made the most of Babylon. He brought God to Babylon. He brought righteousness to Babylon. And so that's what we're called to do as exiles. 
but we live in anticipation of a life that's not yet fully realized in a place where Jesus has gone to prepare for us. That's the heaven that we look forward to. Uh, The earth is made new. And so there's two views on this. Either the earth that we currently live on is cleansed and sin is done away with and the earth that we currently live on is made new and we'll see Job's peak, but we'll see it like we've never seen it before. Or this earth is burned with fire and completely destroyed and a new earth is formed. I don't think focusing on one of those two things is really what matters. I think what really is important here is uh, the important takeaway is that the imperfection that sin causes on earth that we see and experience and know now will be removed. Natural disasters are done away with. Diseases are done away with. There's no such thing as a pandemic in Jesus's realm. Right? Like all of the brokenness that we know and experience, it's, it's gone away. It's done away with. Paul actually says that the creation itself groans for this day. That even the earth itself longs to be renewed. And so anything that would lead to suffering and death or anything of that broken nature, it's done away with on this new earth. And so the first thing you may have to deal with is that when you think about eternity, you may be thinking of clouds and harps and angels and those types of things. Uh, But the, the real heaven, the eternal state that God has for us, it's a renewed place of God's dwelling and it's a renewed earth. It's physical. It's tangible. We have real bodies. We live in real cities. We walk on real streets. We eat real food. We get to enjoy real art, new art and new music. And uh, there'll be trade and commerce and all the things that we understand, but sin will not be a part of it. There'll be work to do because work itself is not a curse, but our work is harder, right? We will go back to that Edenic time where the work that we do will be fully rewarding. You ever work real hard and it just doesn't feel rewarding? That won't be a part of this. Uh, The other thing that comes down from heaven is this this new Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem means the city of peace. Uh, This is ironic when you consider Jerusalem's history uh, and what awaits it within the tribulation, that it would be called the city of peace. That's an ironic name. But it comes from Genesis chapter 14 where we meet this guy named Melchizedek and he is the king of Salem, the Hebrew word for peace. And he is a priest and a king of Salem. He's the king and priest of peace. And he's really a picture of Jesus when he returns. Uh, the, The book of Hebrews reveals that that's what Melchizedek was intended to do for us. He was to provide a picture of this priest and king who would bring us peace. When Jesus is announced, he's actually announced as the prince of peace. And so he's the king of peace. He's the king of Salem. And he's going to bring this city, this this city that we see in Revelation chapter 21. Jesus is bringing his eternal peace to the earth. And what this imagery is intended to do is intended to give us hope and to inspire the imagination of the people of God. And so when you think about eternity, you need to think about God's dwelling place among his people, a new heaven. You need to think about an earth that is perfect in every way, as glorious and as enjoyable as this earth is. The one that we inhabit in the eternal state will be really something else. Um, I also, I mean, this is just me, but I love to explore the earth and I've barely scratched the surface. If eternity sounds boring to you, you're not thinking right. And the city of peace, the center of the earth being the city from which God rules, Jesus rules and brings peace to the entire earth. 
There's a little phrase in there, no more sea. A lot of people get caught up on that. Uh, when we talk about the sea within apocalyptic literature within the Bible, um, it could be the origin of cosmic evil. Um, it could be an unbelieving, rebellious nations who cause tribulation for God's people. It's referenced as the, the place of the dead. Um, it's referenced as the primary location of the world's idolatrous economic and religious systems, and it can also reference a literal body of water. Um, I don't think of the new earth as a place that doesn't have seas, but I do think of the new earth as a place that doesn't have the origin of evil. Satan is not there. It doesn't have unbelieving, rebellious nations causing tribulation for God's people. It doesn't have those who are spiritually dead there. It doesn't have an idolatrous economic and religious system there. When it talks about having no sea, it's not saying you won't have boats to sail on. The point is that evil and all the ramifications of evil are not a part of the new heaven and the new earth. And so picture that if you can, if you will. We learn more in verse three. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling place is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Again, we look at the tabernacle and the way that it was set up for the Jewish people and how Jesus came and pitched his tent among us. I'll take that a step further. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that now we as Christians have become God's dwelling place, that the spirit of God resides in us and we have actually become his tabernacle. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection, you have become God's temple, his tabernacle, his dwelling place. And so what that really means is for the Jewish people, there was one little spot where God's hot spot was known. And then Jesus shows up and there's a mobile hot spot. He's moving around, but it's God's presence. And he's removing sin and he's transforming people. And the people that he removes sin from and transforms, now we become God's hot spots. And so everywhere that God carries us, he carries himself. Everywhere that we move as Christians, God is moving with us. We can walk in step with him. That's what Paul encourages us to do, to keep in step with the spirit so that the deeds of the, of the spirit would come out of us. The fruit of the spirit would be our lives, not the deeds of our flesh. And so we keep in step with the spirit and we are God's hot spots, living in ways that we couldn't live on our own because of the transformative power that is within us. That's what the tabernacle was about. This is God's dwelling place. The other thing that happens within the Old Testament, the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and a little bit of Exodus, right? Moses goes up on the mountain. God gives him the Ten Commandments, and then he gives him uh, roughly 50 more commands, uh, uh, clarifying the Ten Commandments. But in the book of Leviticus, they get a whole host more commandments. And what the law was given to the Jewish people to do is the idea was this is what it looks like when there's a group of people who walk in step with God. They live this way. They care for each other. They don't take advantage of each other. They look out for the stranger. They bless the resident alien. They're caring for the least of these. They're using their goods to bless other people rather than hoarding them for themselves. There's all these rules within the Old Testament that that's what it was about. It was showing the nations around Israel, what's it like to walk in step with God? Well, what do we know about the nation of Israel? They weren't very good at it. They couldn't accomplish it. They fell short because of their human frailty, because of their brokenness, their iniquity. And so what, is, what happens is, is Jesus actually shows up because the law's point was not to make us righteous, but to show us our unrighteousness and lead us to a savior. Paul describes the law as a tutor. It guides us to our need of a savior. 
And then what does Jesus do for us? He removes the penalty of sin to justify us. Romans 5.1, we've been justified. We've been made right before God because Christ has wiped out the penalty of sin. He's taken it off of our account, paid for it with his own blood, and there is no more debt. We're justified. We're made right before God. Paul goes on in Romans chapter eight, and then he describes that as Christians, we now are led by the law of the spirit, which brings life and overcomes the power of sin. So Jesus pays the penalty of sin by his spirit indwelling us. He then allows us to overcome the power. So the penalty is taken care of with Jesus's death. The power is overcome through the spirit within us. And what Revelation 21 reveals is that God's transformed people are empowered to follow his ways so perfectly that there's no death, no grief, no crying, no pain. The presence of sin is done for in the new heavens and the new earth with the new Jerusalem and the perfect king reigning. And so this is the hope that we look forward to is that right now I understand that I'm justified. I'm made right by Jesus's death on my behalf. He has paid for sin on the cross and I am justified. The penalty is done away with. If I keep in step with the spirit and I walk by the power of the spirit, I'm going to overcome the power of sin within my life. I'm going to deal with temptation. I'm going to be drawn towards sin, but I'm not going to give into it because the spirit of God gives life to my mortal flesh. That's what Paul says, that we would be guided by the law of the spirit. In the new heavens and the new earth, I will not even have the presence of sin within me. A new resurrection body without iniquity, without brokenness, without a draw towards sin. Right now I have the draw towards sin and I can sin. Within this new heaven and this new earth, it will be an entire population of people who are not drawn towards sin and who will not sin. They will only bless each other because God will have perfected them. And so that's what that law of life is showing us. Jesus wiping away every tear from our eyes. Well, how can there be no tears? because no one will harm you. There will be no grief, there will be no death. Only a perfected people, not of their own work, but by what Jesus has done on their behalf. We learn who rules this realm in verse five, then the one seated on the throne, this is Jesus. Look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. Now we talk about a perfect king. For the Jewish people, when you talked about a king, they would have immediately gone back to the three great kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. David being the greatest king of the Old Testament. But what do we know about David? In his greatness, though he was a man after God's own heart, he was also full of sin. He broke God's commands. He committed adultery. He had someone murdered. He had a broken relationship with his son. His son actually tried to steal the throne from him. And so we understand that even the greatest of human kings, even the greatest king after God's own heart, sins and there's serious consequences for sin. Another one of the great kings within Jewish history would have been Josiah. The law had been lost. The Old Testament had been lost. And Josiah finds it. And he then says, let's live our lives according to what God has revealed through the law. And he does all these social reforms. And he tears down all the idols within the area. Or at least he's trying to. And, and then he ends up losing his life in battle. And so there's a, there's a period of refreshment for the nation. But it's temporary. It doesn't last. He cannot bring lasting change. Because the law was incapable of that. But then you insert Jesus and he says he's making all things new. He's making all things new forever. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one who has the ability. See, think of what he does. 
He, he takes sinners and he makes them saints. He takes completely broken people and he makes them whole. He takes people whose every inclination, this is, what, this is what God says of humanity before the flood. He takes people whose every inclination is evil all the time and he gives them the ability to do good, to bless, to live lives that honor God and take care of other people. He takes sinners and he makes them saints. He takes the broken and he makes them whole. He takes the helpless and he makes them conquerors. Maybe you need to hear this. Nobody needs to clean themselves up before they come to Christ. And everybody's story is different. But he knows your brokenness. He knows who hurt you. He knows your addictions. He knows your struggles. He knows your pain. He knows your broken home. He he knows your story. And that it's unique to you. And it doesn't matter how broken or how unique. He takes that mess and he transforms it to wholeness. Maybe not in the snap of fingers, but over the course of a lifetime and into eternity, he makes you whole. He gives you life. And that's what he says. He would freely give to the thirsty from the spring of water of life. Ever feel thirsty and find yourself doing something you wish you weren't doing? Never find yourself hurting and turning to something that won't bring you wholeness? Jesus is saying, I'll give you what you need. Trust me. And he does all of this, not just for a moment or not a season of your life, but he accomplishes this for all of our eternity. So then he calls us conquerors in verse 7. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Uh, That word conquer, it shows up in Revelation through the seven churches, seven different times. This is the eighth time that God's people are called conquerors or those who conquer. It's those who overcome and they inherit because God has made them his sons based upon the redemptive work of his son, Jesus. Uh, so there's, there's imagery of closeness that God wants us to understand here, right? Uh, at the beginning, he said that we would be like a bride. I don't know about you, but I'm not excited about that one. Um, that one doesn't get me as going as being a son, right? But he also calls us brides and sons. And if you take that to a logical conclusion, it's weird, right? It's obviously intended to be imagery, that we're, we're intended to be close to him. We're intended to be drawn near to him, that we would prepare ourselves or be prepared for him, right? You, you go to a wedding and, and I've done a couple of weddings where the bride was like 25 minutes late and everybody's standing around. One, it was August and it was hot and everybody was under one tree where there was shade. But she wanted to look perfect when she came out. That was her goal. Like, no, the makeup artist didn't quite get it right. I need this done and my hair isn't just the way I want it and so on and so forth. Or, I don't know, I wasn't in the room, I'm assuming. But, but all these things are going on and the rest of us are going, it's hot, right? But she wanted to be perfect as she stepped to the altar. And that's the idea that's pictured here for us. But it's not about us perfecting ourselves, it's about God perfecting us. And then the son imagery, that's the idea of being taken as somebody who has no family or has a broken family and taken out of that family and adopted as somebody who's going to receive a full inheritance of what the father has. 
And so he draws us near and he perfects us and he makes us his bride and then he makes us his son and he gives us a full inheritance of what he has. That's why we can say we're more than conquerors. Not because I have done this, but because Christ has perfected me, because he has made me a co-heir with him. And so we conquer not through our own effort or ability, but through what Christ has done for us. And so there is this conquering society. And so maybe one of the things you need to picture in the new heavens and the new earth is there's an entire civilization that crosses the globe that only serves Christ, that only longs for intimacy with him and to bless others, that only views themselves as a a son of the king with a full inheritance of his grace to bless others. Completely fulfilled people. Taking nothing from no one. But the cowards, verse 8, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so there's another group of people whose pattern of life and their works display rejection of Christ, and they're judged and eternally condemned. You look at the language there, the word coward, that would have been right in what John was sharing to the seven churches, that there was persecution and there were people denying Jesus' name, and he's saying, don't be a coward, but be strong. Maintain faithfulness in Christ. Um, We also understand that faith faith is a gift, and as we approach God and seek faith, he will gladly give it to us. And so maybe you're in a season of doubt within your life. My my, uh, advice to you is don't dig into the doubt, but dig into Jesus and ask him for faith. I mean, you can doubt, but, but, and that's all right. Ask the questions, but dig into Christ. Ask him for faith. Ask him to show you what the scriptures truly mean. Ask him to reveal to you his will for your life. Dig into him, not your doubt. A word detestable, um, within the Old Testament, they would have used the word abomination. It's something that turns God's stomach. It's something that he looks at and he goes, again, before the flood, he looks at humanity and he's sad that he made us. Why? Because we're constantly taking advantage of each other as we're out of relationship with him. We're constantly using other people rather than blessing them because we're out of relationship with him. Murderers, those who are willing to take the lives of another, be that somebody young or old, unborn, it doesn't matter. Those who are willing to take the lives of others, or as Jesus would say, those who harbor hatred within their heart for another. Those who are unwilling to forgive. Those who would, uh, maybe you wouldn't act on your hatred, but you hate certain people. That is not of God. The sexually immoral. um, The scriptures actually couldn't be clearer on this. It's one man, one woman, inside of covenant marriage for life. Anything other than that is sexually immoral. One man, one woman, covenant marriage for life. Anything else, sexually immoral. I don't care what the liberal church says. I don't care what our society says. One man, one woman, inside of marriage for life. Okay? Anything else is sexually immoral. Anybody who would uphold anything else is upholding sexual immorality. Sorcerers, that's those who would practice drugs, Um, and the occult in order to have spiritual experiences. Idolaters is those who worship the creation over the creation, the creation over the creator. And liars is obviously those who live in a state where they're ignoring truth. Now, if you're willing to look at this list, 
you're probably willing to say, if you're honest with yourself, that you're guilty of everything. But you're not guilty because Christ took your guilt for you. Have I experienced cowardice or have I, have I experienced being a coward? I have. Have I struggled with times of faith? You bet. Have I done something that turns God's stomach and harmed another person? I have. Have I harbored hatred? You bet. Have I practiced sexual immorality? I have. Have I been drawn into drugs and, and living a lifestyle apart from God? There was a season in my life where I was stupid enough to go there. Have I worshiped the creation over the creator? I have. Have I lived in a state where it wasn't true? My entire life revolved around lies. I have. But thanks be to God, Jesus has demonstrated his love for me by saving me from all of those things. And so it's not of me, but it's of him. I'm right before God and justified and the penalty of sin is taken away, not because I got something right, but because Christ did everything right for me. I live not in those old patterns of life, not because I have the strength to do it, but because the spirit of God dwells in me and I have the power to overcome sin as I keep in step with the spirit. He has the power to overcome sin as I keep in step with the spirit. I look forward to a time, a place, a realm, a physical reality where God dwells on the earth and there is no sin, not in me, not in you, not in anything else. The, the presence of sin is done away with. We will neither desire nor be drawn to, nor practice anything that is against God or harm another person. If that's not exciting to you, I don't think you're listening. But the defeated rebels, they're not a part of Christ's realm. And so we have to come to terms with the fact that the eternalistic universal salvation mantra of our culture, it does not in any way, shape, or form match what the Bible teaches. It's a lie. We're not all touching the same elephant, trying to figure out who's got the leg and who's got the trunk, but we all are touching God. That's not it. There's one God. He has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. That one God has saved us through Jesus' death on the cross and he has given us life through Jesus' resurrection. He promises to return and secure an eternity of goodness and sinlessness for all who trust him. Now you can believe in the pluralistic universal salvation that is so popular in our culture right now, but you can't believe that and the Bible. You can't do both. You have to choose, do I trust God's word and him or do I trust my culture and what's popular, right? And this has been the choice for all of humanity throughout human history. Am I going to go along with what everybody else is doing and follow what's normative within my culture in respect to God or am I going to believe what the scriptures reveal to be true about God? And if you've never made this choice, make it. I implore you to make the one that recognizes that God has loved you and redeemed you. I would, I would, I would encourage you to believe the one that is consistent in its beliefs. You see, because the pluralistic universal salvation, it's, if you want to be logical, you, you can't actually be there. You can be hopeful. But the question is, will your hope be realized? And the scriptures have a different form of hope. The scriptures have a form of hope that says that God will store up for those whom love him a place that mind cannot conceive. 
It's revealed to John in these visions, but we cannot fully grasp it. It's too wonderful. And so when you consider life after death, what are your sources? Do you view heaven through the lens of Hollywood, paganism, and cultural assumption? If you do, I'd encourage you to look at where do your assumptions about heaven and eternity, where do they fail to match what the Bible tells us? And are you willing to reconcile yourself to the scriptures? More important is your view of a new heaven, a new earth, earth. Is it focused on Jesus or just the hope of being reunited with a loved one? I've done some funerals one recently where everybody assumed that the person was going to heaven. But Jesus tells us that we can judge a fruit by its tree, or the other way around. We can judge a tree by its fruit. If life gives you melons, you might be dyslexic. Um, We can judge a tree by its fruit. And I have to tell you that I'm not the judge. That's not my job. I don't judge someone's eternity, and I could be totally wrong. But if Jesus reveals to us that we can tell where a person is headed based upon the patterns of their lives. There are some people that I love that have passed away that I'm worried for. That said, there are some people that I love that have passed away that I can't wait to see again. I look at my great-grandparents and my grandmother and my grandfather, and I know right where they are. They had a confession of faith that Jesus was their Lord and Savior, and their lifestyle, though not perfect, matched following him. And so we want the focus of the heaven to be Jesus. And when we look forward to eternity, we need to fix our eyes on him. And what that should do is it should stir a deep desire within us for his return. And we should say, Jesus, come back and eradicate sin and evil. I I know you've justified me and I don't have the penalty of sin on me. And I know that as I walk in your spirit, I don't have the power of sin on me. But I live within the presence of sin and sin dwells in my flesh. And I can't wait to have a new body where that isn't the case. I can't wait to be surrounded with people where that is the case. But the other thing that must make us do is look at the folks around us who don't know Jesus and we have to go, wow, we have work to do. Christ didn't leave us here by accident, but he commissioned us. And so we should share how Jesus has rescued us and redeemed us. What's your story of being rescued and redeemed? What's your story of transformation into the likeness of Christ? What's your hope for the future? Share that. And if you've not trusted in Jesus, I pray that today would be your day of salvation. Will you listen to the good news? Christ died for your sins once for all. He justified you and made you right before the Father. He rose from the dead to give you a new life and cause you to be a new creation so that his spirit would dwell in you and move you forward in new patterns of life. He secures for you an eternity that is perfect and without sin. And so I wonder if you'd believe and be saved here and now and forevermore. Will you trust and follow Jesus today? Pray with me. Father, help our eyes to see things for what they truly are. Help us to see you for who you truly are. A just God 
who condemns sin, but ultimately out of your love condemned my sin on the cross of your son, paid for it and made me right, rose from the dead and gave me new life, promises to return and bring me into a realm without sin, without death, without evil. Help us to see a future and long for your return. Help us to remember that our citizenship is in heaven. And while we live here as exiles, we live for the better of the land that we're exiled in. God, I pray for those here this morning who don't know you, that today they would choose to trust your son Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and that they would honor him as their Lord moving forward. That they would share that decision with someone. Father, as we take communion, we remember your son's death, burial, and resurrection, and what he has accomplished for us. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.